This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA attorney and retirement and estate planning expert, Jim Lang, the best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Now on the air and online worldwide at retiresecure.com, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. I'm David Baer, here in the KQV studio with Jim Lang, CPA, attorney, and author of two best-selling books, Retire Secure and The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again. Today, we welcome Jonathan Clements back to the show. The top personal finance writer for the Wall Street Journal for 18 years, he and Jim collaborated on some 30 columns. Jim is... Jonathan's also the author of the bestseller book, The Little Book of Main Street Money, 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money. Stay tuned for an interesting and informative hour. And listeners, since our show is live, Jim and Jonathan are available to answer your questions. To join the conversation, call the KQV studios at 412-333-9385. That's 412-333-9385. And with that, I'll say hello, Jim, and welcome, Jonathan. Welcome, Jonathan. Hey, Jim. How are you? It's great to be with you. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Um, as, as you know, but I'll, I'll tell our listeners that you are my favorite personal finance writer, and I actually think that your columns in the Wall Street Journal are masterpieces. And then um, when you, and I guess it's not fair to say that the little book of mainstream money is a compilation of your articles, but let's say it has some of your best thinking. And I just love that, love this book, The Little Book of Main Street Money. I've recommended it many times to many clients. I actually have what we call a non-returning library where I have some of my favorite books, favorite financial books, and I offer it to clients and prospects. And your book is prominently displayed in that, in that case. So it's always a pleasure to have you and, um, and frankly, to freely promote your book, which I think would be a terrific thing for people to get. Uh, again, that's the little book of Main Street money. Um, before, when you, you, were, you were gracious enough to come on the radio show before, and I think you gave some people some great information. And you talked about seven different key beliefs that are also in your book. And I thought maybe what I could do is uh, kind of go through them one by one, tell you what they are, and then maybe have you expand on the thought a little bit. Because I think that they are uh, very wise, and they have certainly stood up. And as I was reviewing the book, you know, it's, it's certainly very, very current and applicable right now. And the first thing, and the, the other thing that I thought was interesting is usually when you think of financial guys, and, uh, and I'll, I'll admit that I'm included in this category, that you expect some technical discussion about Roth IRAs or yields on dividends or, or things like that. But one of the things I thought was terrific about your book and actually about your columns is that you're a little bit of a, let's call it financial philosopher. And you have some beliefs that I think go a little bit beyond what you could calculate with a computer or a slide roll. And one of them is money is a means to an end. It isn't an end in itself. If we don't know what our goals are, we might not settle on the right strategy. Could you expand on what you mean by money is a means to an end? 
I'm happy to do so, Jim. I mean, when we uh, save and invest, we shouldn't save and invest in a vacuum. We shouldn't just, you know, go out and buy this life insurance policy or get that estate planning document. What we really need to do is to sit down and think about our financial affairs in the context of our entire lives. Take saving and investing for, for you know, we, we sure, it's nice, you know, to get up in the morning and fire up the computer and call up our brokerage account or our mutual fund account and see how much we have, but the goal isn't to have the biggest balance possible. The goal is to save and invest that money so that we can achieve our goals. And indeed, if we can really visualize what we want to achieve with our finances, we want to put the kids through college, we want to we have a particular vision for what our retirement is going to look like. If we can really visualize that goal, then not only can we get the appropriate saving investment strategy, but also we're going to be much more committed to it. So before you really do anything with your finances, what you need to do is sit down and think about what's really important to you. What are the goals that you want to pursue? You know, what, is, what are the financial worries that you want to protect against? Once you start to flesh that out and really understand what you want to achieve with your money, then you can build the right sort of financial portfolio. Well, one of the things that I have found in my practice, and I have quite a few retirees um, and and some, some seniors who have done a pretty good job of accumulating money, typically in a retirement plan or a 401k or an IRA of some type, and they've spent a, a career accumulating money, not spending very much, and, and actually today was a perfect example. A guy in his early 80s, he had $2 million of investable assets. He had Social Security of about $30,000. And I asked him how much he was spending. And he told me that he spent somewhere around $40,000 a year. So here the guy has $2 million, and, and and he literally can't spend more. I mean, it's just not in his DNA or constitution. And we had a little discussion about his kids and his grandkids and setting up education, 529 plans, etc. But do you think that, that your idea of money is a means to an end that isn't an end of itself not only applies to people in the distribution s- t- portion of their, of their career, but also in the distribution as opposed, I'm sorry, not, the, not only the accumulation, but also the distribution phase? No, I think you're absolutely right. I'm- you know, when I sit down and have, you know, dinner or drinks with, you know, financial experts like you, Jim, occasionally, you know, the conversation rolls around to, like, what percentage of the population do you think truly has their finances under control? And the number that, you know, a lot of uh, financial professionals will use is 15 to 20%. There are 15 or 20% of the population who really have their finances under control. And the other 80% are somewhere between middling to totally out of control. But when you get that 15 or 20%, those people who really are super good at delaying gratification and saving for retirement and other goals, when it comes to that distribution phase, when it comes to starting to live off their savings, they have a real problem. They are so good at delaying gratification and saving money that they can't pull the switch and start to spend. And so what you find is the people who, who do indeed have multi-million dollar portfolios, and despite the many years of sacrifice that they put in in order to accumulate that money, they really can't bring themselves to enjoy it. Yeah, and, and, and that's a problem for, for me as a planner because I tell them I'm happy if, 
if you decide to start spending more money, you know, take some cruises and we'll, we'll talk about your um, experiences and wealth. But, you know, whether it's go on cruises or um, sponsor a family vacation or um, go out to dinner more or whatever it might be. But most of, a lot of these folks just can't do it. And then I then the second thought is, OK, well, if you literally can't spend money on yourselves, um, maybe you should help be thinking about giving some money to your kids, helping your grandkids with their education, helping your favorite charity, your favorite church, whatever it might be. And a lot of them see if, if you were to actually they might not think of it like this. But I if I was to categorize some of their plans, it would be, well, my plan is to work really hard, build up a retirement plan. Now that I have it, I'm not going to spend very much. I'm not going to really help my kids out that much, maybe a little bit here and there um, while I'm alive. I'm not going to spend when to accumulate, accumulate. And then eventually I'm going to die, pay a lot of taxes. And then the kids get money in their 50s and 60s. And that's not the best plan. Uh, and it's not the best plan. And it, it really also brings up a, a related and I think really important point. You know, we spend four decades preparing financially for retirement. We don't spend nearly enough time thinking about what we're going to do once we do leave the workforce. You know, people have this notion of retirement as some sort of endless vacation. But if you go into retirement with that vision, you know, retirement is going to be all about relaxing, you'll probably be bored out of your brain within two months. What we really find satisfying what makes for a happy life is being engaged in activities that we think are challenging, that we think are important, that we're passionate about, that gives us a sense of purpose. As you think about retirement, you shouldn't be thinking about, oh, you know, how many days a week I'm going to play golf or, you know, who I'm going to play bridge with or stuff like that. What you should think about is what is it that I really enjoy doing that I don't necessarily have can't do now because I'm I have to earn a, a paycheck. But if I could do anything I want and I didn't need a paycheck, is there something I'm really passionate about that I want to pursue? And that might be anything from going back to college to getting involved in your favorite charity, coaching a children's sports team, things like that that are challenging that do seem important. Those are the sort of things that people should be thinking about doing in retirement and not playing golf and playing bridge and sitting around on the couch and relaxing and watching TV. Now, by the way, I like both golf and bridge, so, <laughs> but, but that's okay. I, I, I do a little bit of, little bit of each. And now, now with bridge, the thing is you can play on the internet. Um, so I, I never have like a half a day that I could go to a duplicate bridge tournament, but I'll have 20 minutes and I go on the internet and then play bridge, bridge on the internet. Well, one of the things that you know, both you and I are um, are, uh, are fond of doing is bicycling. And I also have an older brother who is a keen bicyclist. And he is about to sell his business, and he's going to have a substantial amount of free time. And he's firmly committed to uh, to bicycling more. And as I keep telling him, telling my brother, "Hey, Nick, yeah, that's great. You know, you can bicycle for an hour a day. You can bicycle for two hours a day. But you've got to figure out." What are you going to do with the other 14 or 15 hours? Because you can't bicycle the entire day. That is not enough for a satisfying retirement. Oh, I thought you were going to tell me that he was going to do one of these cross-country trips or even around-the-world trip. 
Well, he actually is talking about the cross-country trip, but that's a different conversation, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and, and by the way, I should mention, and it's not really a financial book, but um, I, I, I actually, and I, I didn't get through it, but I did start it. Um, your novel, which was, let's say, a little bit different, um, about bicycle and love. And what, what, what is the name of it again, please? The book is called uh, 48 and Counting, and the subtitle is A Story of Money, Love, and Bicycling. And what it is, is a, it's a novel that brings together the three things that I know the most about, which is one, money, two, bicycling, and three, failed relationships. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you're saying that tongue-in-cheek, and if your wife is like mine, she's not listening anyway. So <laughs> she, she doesn't. I, I, I could say anything, and she, she doesn't listen. So anyway, that, that actually leads us into the second area, which is you said we shouldn't neglect today. What do, what do you mean by that, we shouldn't neglect today? Managing money is often about pursuing these goals that are many years or even many decades into the future, like you know, saving for retirement, saving for our to- toddler's college education. But it's really hard to focus exclusively on those longer-term goals, because if you do that, you know, you're going to you're going to fall off the wagon. You know, you're going to you know have months when you don't save as much as you should, um, and maybe more important, you're going to have months when the markets are really rough, and you're going to be panicked. So, what you want to do, even as you focus on those longer-term goals, is also pay attention to what it takes for you to feel financially secure today. So that when we have a year like 2008 and the S&P 500 is down 37, 38%, you're not freaking out and you still feel okay about your investments and you're going to stick with them even at the worst time. Well, that, that actually, um, it's a little bit out of order from what I was planning to talk about, but that, that I thought was one of your really interesting f- thoughts of the book where you said that the asset allocation percentage and I assume what you're talking about here is percent bonds and percent stocks and even, you know, subdivisions within um, stocks and, and bonds. Um, you know, for example, small cap value and small cap growth and mid cap value, mid cap growth, and et cetera, et cetera. But the, the asset allocation percentages that you choose for your portfolio are less important than your willingness to stick with them, whatever they are. I thought that that was really wise, and if you could expand on that thought a little bit, um, because it, it does relate to um, what happens in a downturn when, unfortunately, many people didn't follow that advice. They were perhaps too aggressive early, and then after the downturn, they became too conservative, and then they missed the rebound. Well, in a past dozen years have taught us they taught us anything is that investors tend to chase performance. I mean we saw that in the late nineteen nineties and early two thousand as people piled into growth stocks generally and tech stocks in particular. And then we saw it again through the early two thousands up to the market peak in two thousand and six when people piled into the real estate market. I mean when it comes to investing, people behave in the totally the opposite way from the way they shop. When Macy's holds a sale after Christmas, everybody rushes and buys. When the stock market holds a sale, everybody panics and wants to sell. (laughs) 
So what you need to do is to settle on a mix of investments, stocks, bonds, cash investments, maybe hard assets like you know real estate securities, and then and you should have a mix that you are willing to stick with come what may. And if that you don't have that mix, then I would encourage you to adjust because the markets are going to do a crazy thing. And the worst thing that you could possibly do is sell sound investments simply because they've dropped 20% in value. Well, that, that I think leads into another one of your seven key beliefs, which is money is emotional. What do you mean by money is emotional? And how, and how does emotions really have an impact on our investment decisions? Mm. And if they do, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And if it's a bad thing, how can we overcome them? Mm. Saving and investing is really remarkably simple. I mean, if you want to be, grow obscenely rich, all you have to do is save, save diligently, diversify broadly, you know, and stick with that portfolio for three or four decades. <laughs> it's as simple as that. This is really, it's not that complicated. And yet, we all regularly mess up. And why do we mess up? Because of our emotional reaction to the market's ups and downs. Um, we also, unfortunately, don't save as much as we should, and partly because we're constantly tempted to spend. You know, people say, you know, I'm going to save 10 or 15% of my income this month, but they get to the end of the month and there's nothing left to save because, you know, they kept walking past shop windows and seeing things they wanted to buy. We are constantly pulled away from sensible long-term saving investing plans by our emotions. And this is the reason the financial advice business exists. It's not because the typical financial advisor is any great genius the financial advice business exists because financial advisors are able to help clients stick with investments when they're other when they're tempted to tempted to sell at the worst possible time or buy at the worst possible time. Yeah, there, there was actually an interesting article in in uh, your your old paper today <coughs> in the Wall Street Journal that talked about people not really being able to stick to their New Year's resolutions, and they talked about one of the ways to have a more successful chance of sticking to the, your New Year's resolutions and in this area specifically saving money is to just have a chunk of it withheld so you literally never see it. So it automatically goes from your paycheck to some type of savings vehicle. And that was one of the ways to get around it. So, you know, you, you, don't, you don't miss it like it's not even there. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the most powerful forces, you know, we've discovered is inertia. Um, so once some, you get somebody to agree to something, they're, they're, they don't tend to go back and re-examine it. So if when you join a company, if, you, if the company can persuade you to enroll in the 401k plan and contribute a certain amount each year, you know, you'll probably stick with it. But if they fail to do so, then you'll probably you know, never sign up, or by the time you sign up, you'll have missed, you know, years of investment gains and years of matching contributions from the 401k plan from the employer. Yeah, and I think they actually changed the presumption. I think before you had to proactively sign up, and I think now you almost have to uh, opt out of the system because, and which, which, by the way, I thought was a great thing. 
Um, because if you don't think, like you said, out of inertia, you'll be in the system, you'll be contributing money, your employer will hopefully be contributing some money, and then you have some money that is automatically going to a retirement plan, to a retirement plan that will help you in the long run. And no, you're absolutely right. I mean, because, you know, they know that inertia is a powerful force, and because they know how they how questions are framed will influence what you decide, what a lot of companies have done is one have automatic enrollment where you're already put in, you're automatically put into the 401k plan unless you opt out. Two, you know they have automatic increases, so the amount you contribute to the plan rises each year unless you opt out. And three, they create uh, default investment options that tend to be broadly diversified stock and bond portfolios, so that you'll end up in something that's a reasonably sensible portfolio for you, again, unless you opt out. And it's great until you get fired. Well, but, but, uh, but actually, David, David is going to... I'm waving. I'm waving. <laughs> not cutting. Well, let's take this quick break now, and when we return, you can continue the conversation. And listeners, if you have a question or comment, call KQV Studios at 412-333-9385. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. And welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. With I'm David Baer here with Jim Lang and Jonathan Clemens. Uh, Jonathan, we're talking about a couple of the great strategies that you lay out in your book, The Little Book of Main Street Money. 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money, which I am going to highly recommend that our listeners uh, go to Amazon and purchase. And one of your seven key beliefs that I thought was very good, and again, here you are mixing, um, let's say, personal wisdom with financial expertise, is we should focus on things we can control. Probably... Probably not a lot of us necessarily do that. Think about the various components of financial success. There's how much you save. There's what the financial markets return. There's how much you pay to get that those financial returns. And there's how much you lose along the way to taxes. We have great control over how much we save. We have a lot of control over how much we pay in taxes. We have a lot of control over what we pay in investment expenses. And we have absolutely no control over what the financial markets are going to do. So what do people spend their time doing? They spend their time fretting endlessly about the market's short-term performance and trying to guess what it's going to be, whereas they could have substantially improved their finances by taking all that energy and instead focusing on those other three things, how much they save, how much they pay in taxes, and how much they incur in investment costs. It's that simple. Well, I, w- I wish more people would, would take that to heart because I think so many, I mean, you know, when I'm hanging out with friends and everybody's saying, well, you know, uh, I don't know about Apple, and they, they go on and on about all these things that, again, they don't have any control over, but nobody says hey, it's really important to save money on taxes, so therefore I'm going to invest in something that is more tax efficient, or 
I'm really going to be looking at a Roth IRA conversion strategy or things like that. That's not what tends to happen at the water cooler and even in conversations. So I think that that advice is very important. Um, the other, or at least one other key belief that you have is the virtue of simplicity. And, and, and we all see this. I mean, you know, particularly these days, I mean, there's a sort of, you know, there's a fascination with complicated investments. People think that it's so cool and so sophisticated to have an investment in a hedge fund or in some sort of, you know, private equity, or they buy one of these mutual funds that pursues some complicated strategy. But they don't really understand the strategy. They're only doing it because it's something that they could talk about at those cocktail parties Jim attends. And they would be much better served by sticking with simple products. If you stick with simple mutual funds, you pursue simple strategies, a couple of things are going to happen. One, you're more likely to stick with it because you actually understand what you're doing and you're less likely to panic if there are a couple of rough days in the market. And two, you're likely to incur substantially lower investment costs. And those lower investment costs will, everything else being equal, translate into better long-run returns because you're simply not losing so much the Wall Street middleman. Well, I agree with that. And that, that by the way, is the, the direction of our, of our practice, which, which involves, let's say, a combination of our advice and low-cost index funds. Um, again, with an understandable uh, basis. You have some other, what I would say are somewhat unconventional thoughts, and I'll tell you one thought that, that you presented, that I've presented to parents, and they don't like it at all. <laughs> so first I'm gonna tell you I've got some open hostility about this one, and frankly many of them violate it, but maybe if they heard it from you directly, it might convince them that perhaps it really is the right thing to do. You tell people to fund retirement before you fund your kid's college education. And I have some, a lot of clients whose parents paid for their college education. They are way underfunded in retirement and they're, they're devoting substantial resources even to either into private school for their kids when their kids are in grade school um, and or substantial resources for college, which is much more expensive even after taking into inflation than when their parents went to school. Can you talk a little bit about funding retirement before funding kids' college educations? Well, a lot of people make a fundamental mistake, which is that they deal with their financial goals consecutively rather than concurrently. And what I mean by that is they get into their 30s and they buy the house. They get into their 40s and they pay for the kids' education. And finally, they get to their 50s and they suddenly realize, yikes, I haven't done much about saving for retirement. And at that point, there simply isn't enough time. To amass enough for a comfortable retirement, you really need to start saving by your late 20s or your early 30s. And, you know, because it just takes that many years of regular savings and investment compounding to 
amass enough money. Moreover, you know, think about it. You can take out a mortgage to buy a house. You can take out a loan to buy a car. Your kids can take out loans to go to college. When it comes to retirement, you're going to have to pay cold, hard cash. And it takes 30 or 40 years of saving and investing to have enough cold, hard cash. An additional reason why you should focus on saving enough for retirement before you start focusing on these other goals is all of the, the, the benefits accrue to retirement investors. And what I mean by that is take the classic 401k plan. People who fund that 401k plan you know, get the tax-deferred growth. They get the initial tax deduction, plus they may get some sort of matching contribution from their employer. Nothing else is going to give you that combination of benefits. So if you aren't putting retirement first, in all likelihood, you're giving up the chance to get free money from your employer and this slew of great tax benefits. Well, I, th- I think that's some very good advice. You did It did bring up a point that you and I actually did a column about. I don't know if you remember this, but one of the things that you said, and I think that this is true of a lot of Pittsburghers, uh, we're a little bit of a working town and... I have a lot of clients, for example, who never made a ton of money, but they were prudent. They put money in their retirement plan. They paid the mortgage. They paid their, for their kids' college education. They paid for their kids' braces. And now they have a certain amount of money. And you have said for th- people like that, and they their, their house is usually paid up by the time they get to me, you said in calculating how much money they can afford to spend, that they can actually take into consideration at least a portion of the equity of their home. And that's a little bit unconventional. And again, by the way, that's another one that people don't want to hear. On the other hand, if I remember right, in the column that you had suggested that people could consider 60% of the equity of their home as a number to apply the safe withdrawal rate to, could you expand on the concept of using money or using the value of your home, even if you don't plan tomorrow to do a reverse mortgage or borrow against it, why we can spend more money if we have a, have a paid-up home? Well, I guess there, there, there are two advantages having a paid-up home by the time you, you reach for time. And I mean, uh, you know, one is once the mortgage is gone, you get to live rent-free, and that's a major expense that's out of the way. And we've seen a substantial, you know, increase in the number of people who head into retirement carrying a mortgage, and I think that's a huge mistake. Um, but then second, you know, once you reach retirement, you know, if you if you have a paid-up home, you know, at some point you may well trade down to a smaller place. Um, and at that point, that's going to free up home equity, which you can then add to your retirement nest egg, and that'll give you additional spending money. So, yeah, I think when you look at your house, you know, you should certainly think of it and a potential resource for a time, and maybe not all of it, but certainly some portion of it. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, my shifting is thinking has shifted a little bit. Um, I used to really think that reverse mortgages were, you know, very very high fee items to be avoided at all costs. And we actually did a, a column on this. We were talking about taking out home equity loans or a home equity line of credit in lieu of a reverse mortgage. But I I think that that might have changed a little bit over the years. I don't know if you have any opinion on that, um, whether 
the availability of a reverse mortgage can in effect free us to spend a little bit more knowing that in the future if we need it we can tap into the equity of our house i think we still need to go some way before the you know the reverse mortgage is the sort of product that you know will have mass appeal i mean these still are fairly expensive products but i think we're going to get there simply because you know you know this is going to be a key component of the typical baby boomers retirement but let me just uh, go off on a little bit of a tangent here, Jim, because this is an idea that I've been sort of toying with. I mean, we do know that there are a substantial portion of the U.S. population, none of whom listen to your radio show, by the way, but there's a substantial I'm, portion... Unfortunately. <laughs> there's a substantial portion of the U.S. population that is in terrible shape when it comes to saving for retirement. And so this is my, this is my strategy, and tell me what you think, think it's crazy, but this is my proposal to anybody who's in bad shape for retirement. My rule is this. You should not allow yourself to leave the workforce until you, one, pay off all your debts, and two, you have enough in savings so that you can postpone claiming Social Security until age 70. So in other words, if you haven't got enough money to get all your debts paid off and to cover your costs from now to age 70, at which point you can get full Social Security benefits plus the delayed credits for, for waiting till age 70, then you shouldn't leave the workforce. Because if nothing else, delaying Social Security to age 70, that's going to give you 32 percentage points more than the benefit at full retirement age and 70% more than you're going to get at age 62. And you'll be given a stream of income that is, one, you know, at least partially tax-free, two, linked to inflation, three, government-guaranteed, Four, you're going to get it for the rest of your life. And five, if you're the family's main breadwinner and you, and you die first, your spouse is going to get it as a survivor benefit. So delaying Social Security to the latest possible age, that should be the strategy that people who are in bad shape for retirement should pursue. Well, I, funny that you mentioned that, but because we're actually going to do a radio show on Social Security. And Social Security was one of the areas that I always considered my kind of Achilles heel, what was my weakness because I knew there was ways to game the system, and I didn't really quite get it. Anyway, we invested in a program um, called Horse's Mouth. It's, it's for financial advisors, and it has software that helps calculate, you know, when you should take Social Security, and um, and then makes recommendations. And we actually invested the time to learn how to use it. And I would agree with you that in in the vast majority of cases it really does make sense to delay Social Security and your idea of don't retire until you can afford to delay Social Security till age 70, well, I've never heard it put that way. I think that's great advice. And sort of, I would, I would strenuously argue the flip side, which is the, if the only way that you can retire early is by claiming Social Security immediately, then you've got a problem. Well, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense, and I always like when clients come to me before they retire and say, do I have enough to retire, instead of what one, and this is a true case, uh, the guy came to me and he said, Jim, I've trusted you my whole um, adult financial life, I've, or at least in the last uh, 20 years, and I just, I just retired, and now I want to talk to you about what to do. 
And I looked at the numbers, and I immediately thought, well, see if you can get your job back because you retired too early. So, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that was true, by the way, and he couldn't get his job back. So I think that makes sense. The only one other thing, and, I, and David's waving his arms again, that I, did, I do want to say is if there are some, let's say, tricks with Social Security that you don't want to necessarily just delay it, there's something called apply and suspend, which is a really cool technique um, where you can apply for it and then your spouse can collect on your benefits. But anyway, so I just, I just don't want to say it's always a good thing to delay without thinking. Well, <clears throat> with that, let's take one break. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour with Jim Lang and Jonathan Clements. We are talking um, with Jonathan about some real gems, um, many of which are in his book called The Little Book of Main Street Money, 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money. So, which, by the way, I unreservedly recommend for people. It's, uh, it just has a lot of wisdom, a lot of great information, um, and it's also relatively short. It's about uh, a little less than 200 pages, but it has some great things. Jonathan, one of the, the thoughts that I had, or that you had in the book that kind of surprised me, but I thought it was great, was buy experiences rather than things. What do you mean by buy experiences rather than things? Well, consider two examples. Uh, first example, you go out and you buy a new car. And initially, you know, you're thrilled. You drive it around town, you show it off to the neighbors, you phone up your brother-in-law and you boast about it. And then, three months later, you get the first scratch. And then two years later, you have your first fender bender. And then two years after that, the car breaks down. And suddenly, this thing that had been a source of such pride and such joy is sitting in your driveway, taunting you. By contrast, suppose you went to Paris with the family. Sure, you know, the trip is soon over and the money's gone, but you will always have Paris. You'll have these fond memories, and if anything, those memories will grow fonder over time. Unlike the car, the trip to Paris doesn't sit in the driveway taunting you. <laughs> well, and there's in fact, there's in fact um, a fair amount of research that shows that if you spend your money on experiences rather than things, you'll get more dollars out of the more pleasure out of the dollars that you spend. Well, I actually think that's a great idea. And I'll even take it one step further, because um, I have a lot of clients who are reluctant to spend money, even though I know they could afford it. And they tell me they have everything they want, and what else should they spend money on? And one of the things I tell them is, what about sponsoring a family vacation, where you pay for everything, whether it's a cruise or a kind of a resort-type vacation, or you rent a beach house, and you fly in all the kids and all the grandkids at your own expense, and because that's what my father-in-law does 
and all the cousins know each other and yes he's spending a little bit of money and i guess the whole family is going to inherit a little bit less because he has that but i think we are so much richer as a family because he does that because frankly um what he's doing is he is buying experiences not only for himself but for his family rather than things so i think that's great advice the other thing that you point out um which again is kind of surprising coming from a financial person is that commuting is terrible for your happiness. <laughs> <laughs> commuting is indeed terrible for your happiness. There was a wonderful study done a few years ago um, of 909 working women in Texas. And what they did was they tracked these working women throughout the day, and they got them to report you know, how happy or unhappy they were at particular points in time, and then they, they, they matched it up with whatever they were doing. So, you know, the number one time during the day when, um, when these women were most happy was when they were engaged in what the uh, researchers euphemistically refer to as intimate relations. But I know you don't have that sort of radio show. We're not going to go there, Jim. <laughs> But the number two th thing in terms of happiness was when they were hanging out with friends. That was the second happiest time during the course of the day. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the list, the three worst times during the day were one, when they were at work, two, when they were commuting to work, and three, when they were commuting home from work. And the reason commuting is such a source of unhappiness is because we hate uncertainty. And when you commute, you just never know how bad it's going to be. You don't know how bad the traffic's going to be. You don't know whether the trains are going to be running late. You don't know when the bus is going to turn up. And that uncertainty breeds unhappiness. If you want to do anything to make yourself happy, one of the things you should seriously consider doing is moving so that you are closer to your work. Well, I have to break in here because I heartily agree with uh, this theory. I used to uh, commute into New York City from New Jersey, and it was an hour each way each day. And one day when it was taking longer than an hour, it occurred to me that it was one-twelfth of my day, and that if I did that job until I retired, I'd wind up spending five and a half years of my life going back and forth to work. And there just seemed to be the fact that murderers who serve shorter sentences in nicer places. <laughs> now... Now, of course, what what you could do is you could do what one of my clients does for, for long trips, and that is they download the archives of the radio shows, including your this one. Well, this one won't be available for a few weeks, but let's say your last one as well. As, and I think we have about 80 shows up there. Getting but, up there, but, yeah. but But they download the shows, and then they listen to the shows um, during their commuting time which is both educational and enjoyable. Well, you can always make it better, <laughs> but it's not as good as doing the same thing at home in the kitchen. Well, that's probably true. All right. So um, we, we don't have, we're starting to get in the home stretch here, and we have a couple About more. five minutes, yeah. All right, we have a couple more important issues. In fact, I would say this one might be as important as, as maybe anything we've talked about, um, and that is inflation. Jonathan, that you say is worse than market volatility. So here you're talking about 2008 where we have a 37% drop in the market 
and you're saying inflation is worse than that? Well, let's 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 do the math, Jim. Um, you go to, you go down to your local bank today in Pittsburgh. What sort of what sort of yield would you get on a savings account? Well, <laughs> let's say somewhere between one and two percent if you're lucky. Ah, yeah, if you're really you're lucky. lucky. <laughs> say between nothing and one. <laughs> okay, all right. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I think probably um, you know a lot of savings account yields are running zero point one percent, zero point two. Meanwhile, over the past twelve months, inflation has run at around two percent. So if you Put your money in that savings account, and you leave it there. Once inflation has taken its toll, and of course you're also going to be paying taxes as well, you are guaranteed to lose money. You will have less spending power at the end of the year than you had at the beginning. It's as simple as that. Indeed, even if you go out and you buy a 10-year Treasury note these days, you are probably going to end up losing money to inflation and taxes. So if you want your money to grow over time, you're going to have to take more risk, and that might mean you know, going into higher-quality corporate bonds. It might mean going into the stock market. Yeah, that's going to mean volatility, but that's the price you pay to earn returns that can potentially beat back those two demons of inflation and taxes. So inflation really is worse than market volatility then because it's just a continual force that continues to gnaw at at the value of our portfolios. Yeah. I mean, nobody wakes up, you know, one morning and goes, yikes, you know, inflation is running at 2%. But if you retire on a fixed income and inflation is running at 2%, after 20 years, you'll feel it. Yeah, and, and actually, that's an interesting issue for some of my clients who have um, fixed pensions. And again, these def- these defined benefit plans are becoming more and more rare, but there's still a lot of people who still have them, whether they work for maybe a government agency or even just a private company that had um, a pension plan. But many of these pension plans have a certain amount payment per month that is not adjusted for inflation and is the same amount. And it's tricky for us to calculate how much money they can spend because let's say somebody gets thirty or forty thousand dollars a year in, in a pension, we really can't count on that being the same purchasing power, say ten or twenty years from now. And so, probably what you want to do to try and ensure that you know you have money for later in retirement when the value of that pension is going to be less, is to invest sort of moderately aggressively early in retirement and. Tr- and leave that money aside, don't spend it, in the hopes that you have sufficient to start to um, subsidize what you're receiving from the pension after the pension spending power has been reduced by inflation. Yeah, and and frankly, to me, somebody with a pension should also adjust their asset allocation. So, for example, a teacher who has has a pension plan and can count on a certain income for the rest of their lives should actually be investing a little bit more aggressively in the stock market because their pension is kind of like their bond fund. And that's absolutely right. And that's the same reason why a young person who has a job with a steady paycheck should also be investing relatively aggressively because the paycheck is like a bond. And to diversify that that big bond, your, the value of your human capital, you want to be investing relatively heavily in the stock market when you're younger. And then as you approach retirement and the end of your human capital, the loss of those paychecks, 
And that's when you adjust your portfolio so that you have greater fixed income holdings. Well, Jonathan, it has been a pleasure talking with you today. You are so full of wisdom, um, much of which can be obtained um, in your book, The Little Book of Main Street Money, 21 Simple Truths That Help Real People Make Real Money by Jonathan Clemens. Thank you so much for being on the show. And hey, thank you very much, Jim. And thanks for listening to this edition of the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, thanks to Jonathan Clements. He can be reached directly at his website, jonathanclements.com. Thanks also to our program coordinator, Amanda Cassidy Swinesburg, and Dan Weinberg, our in-studio producer. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at retiresecure.com. KQV listeners can receive free tickets to Jim Lang's Pittsburgh area workshops and more. Call the Lang Financial Group at 412-521-2732. That's 412-521-2732. And reserve your seats and meet Jim Lang in person. Again, that's 412-521-2732.